0: Well, good morning. Yeah, we're taking a break from Revelation for the summer. Uh, I've not done this normally, but like a change-up in baseball, I'm throwing one at you. It's a little bit different. It's a different way of looking at the Lord, um, whereas Revelation shows us this triumphant future picture of Jesus, and then from that picture, we want to learn how to live in the present. Ecclesiastes gives us some much more uh, dirt under the fingernails, uh, life in the trenches, uh, realism about what it's like to walk with the Lord. Uh, both are beautiful books. Uh, they do have a coherent center to both of them, and that is this. And you can see this in the seven churches of Revelation. Is that in the milieu of these cities in Revelation that we've been going through, what holds true? What holds true is that we need to listen to the voice of Jesus, the loving and corrective voice of Jesus in our lives. And the same is true in Ecclesiastes. Solomon's big point is going to be that in the midst of everything that we walk through in life, all that we face, uh, all that we can consider that might have value, the only way to draw coherent meaning in any part of our lives is through our relationship with God. It's only in listening to God and listening to the voice of Jesus that we can find meaning. Many people have come to faith through reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Honestly, I've talked to more people that read it, and they say Ecclesiastes spoke to my cynical, disappointed, angsty soul. You know, as I'm facing life and all the disappointments of life, sometimes I can read the Bible, and it feels too optimistic. Well, Ecclesiastes isn't all that optimistic. Uh, it's very realistic. I wouldn't say it's pessimistic either. It's just a man at the end of his life, who I believe is Solomon. There's some debate about that. He calls himself the teacher. We also know he's the son of David he's the king in Jerusalem. The best guess is Solomon. We have an old Solomon writing this book at the end of his life, who upon reflecting on the many things that he's been involved with, he finds one thing that has coherent meaning, that adds meaning to his life. And that is knowing God and walking with Him. You know, General Assembly was last week. I was there with Andy. And there are a couple of common questions that pastors get at General Assembly. The first one is, How's your church going? So you got to have your answer ready for that. Uh, So my church is going fine. Thank you. It's going pretty well. Been a hard three years, really hard. But thank God we're in a, a better place. Sometimes people ask the follow up question if they know you a little bit better. So, what have you been learning as a pastor lately as you've walked through this time? That's a little bit more difficult to answer, but I'll tell you what my answer was. Basically, it's that I've learned that all of the side reasons, all of the side benefits to pursuing ministry, that someone might pursue ministry for those reasons, those, those reasons besides Jesus, I think people go into ministry because they want to follow Jesus. They love Jesus. But there's other reasons, too. Uh, Some of those reasons might be being valued by others for the ministry that we do. Influencing others toward a vision the Lord has given us. Maybe having some fun along the way. Perhaps some international travel. Or one of the ones that my seminary professors said a lot to convince us to go into pastoral ministry was that you can minister to people from the cradle to the grave. Well, the last three years, I've learned a lot about any other reason besides Jesus for being in the ministry ultimately fails. Sometimes, as a pastor in ministry or whatever you're doing in life, you can put it in your context, sometimes you are valued for the work that you do, and sometimes you're not. Sometimes you feel like you can discern that you're taking steps forward toward a vision, and sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes you have fun. A lot of times ministry isn't fun. Sometimes you get to travel, but not when the world closes down. And if you go into ministry because you want to have a ministry to people from the cradle to the grave— well, it's very hard in a, a transitional suburban environment to have people for five or ten years. If you keep them for longer than that, then that's kind of amazing. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's kind of morbid and a bit pitiful, but I assure you that it's not. It's because of this, because the only reason to do anything that we do, and this is the point of Ecclesiastes, is for Jesus, He is really the only one who lasts. He's the only one who is valuable. If you're an IT programmer, you can walk yourself through the same grid that I walk through. Valued, fun, are you moving things forward? Maybe, maybe not. A stay-at-home parent, do you feel valued? Do you feel like you're moving things forward? Is it fun? Did you get to travel enough last year? Maybe, maybe not. Everything, Solomon's point is everything breaks down. Everything else in life ultimately breaks down outside of a relationship with God. It's true in the ministry and it's true in our lives and all of these other areas that we pursue. Now, Solomon can speak with some authority here because the man had a lot of money. He had a lot of of people who adored him, including a lot of women. He had power, he had prestige, he had family. And so he had all the resources. He was wise, we'll get into that. He was the wisest man, according to the Bible, who's ever lived. And so he can speak with some gravitas and say, listen, now that I'm old, I wish I knew what I knew Then, what I know now, and I'm telling you, if you can learn it when you're young instead of waiting until you're old, you'll be so much better off. Let me save you the pain and disappointment. The only thing that matters in the world is fearing God and keeping his commandments. This is the whole thing. This is it. Everything else breaks down outside of knowing God. I love this book because there have been many times in my life, and there still are, where I lose my way. How do I lose my way? I lose my way by adding things to Jesus. Yes, I love Jesus, but I'm also looking for significance and meaning in other areas of life that will give me what I want in addition to Jesus. We sang the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God, leave the God I love. Solomon would say, Yeah, that's me too, Absolutely. And every time I leave Jesus at the center of my life, every time I leave Him and I pursue something else, I, I've, everything breaks down. I lose the meaning that I've been looking for. So today, Kisa did a great job of reading a bunch of different scriptures. What I'm going to do today is give you the hermeneutical, which is another word, a big word for interpretation, the interpretive key. To understanding and unlocking Ecclesiastes. It's one of those books that can be a bit difficult to understand because he doesn't tell you till the very end of the book how to understand what he's saying. But Solomon's point is this this is the key. First point is everything outside of Christ breaks down, all is vanity. The second point is only Jesus holds his true and coherent meaning. In life, And the third and beautiful point that he makes is that if you have Jesus at the center, he actually gives meaning to everything, okay? So the first point is everything breaks down. If you have Jesus, he holds his meaning. If you have Jesus at the center, then everything else you do in life, if you keep Jesus at the center, then he gives value and meaning to everything. Then if you have Jesus, everything matters in life. That we do because Jesus is there with us. So the first point is this all is vanity under the sun. This is Ecclesiastes 1 1 through 11. So he starts out just listing all of these areas of life that are meaningless without Jesus. Starting in verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So what does vanity mean? It's not a word we use very often. If you look if you have an ESV, you can look down in the footnotes. Vanity concretely in the Hebrew refers to a mist or a vapor or a breath, but metaphorically it refers to something that is fleeting or elusive. It appears 5 times in this verse and 29 other times in Ecclesiastes. This is a key theme of the book. So Solomon, as I said earlier, he stops at nothing To find something that's not vain or like a mist or a vapor that's elusive, that's not elusive in this world, he literally goes through the whole catalog of everything, trying to pursue it. And at the end of the day, he says, everything in this world that's been created, if you take it as a bare reality, if you separate that thing, that created thing from the creator, it breaks down and it is vain. It is meaningless. Verse 3, he says, Toil or work is vanity. We work so hard at our jobs. We spend countless hours trying to move things forward. And oftentimes, when we look at it at the end, it's hard to see if there's any gain at all. Elsewhere, he will say we work and we make money to to save it up, and then we die to give it to someone else who didn't work for it. He's very realistic. He says, work and toil is ultimately meaningless. After J.D. Rockefeller died, someone asked the executor of his estate how much money he left behind, and he said, all of it. All of it. He left all of it behind. J.D. Rockefeller, who worked very hard, is a brilliant man, great businessman, amassed massive wealth. He took as much with him into eternity as the poorest human being who has ever lived. Toil Work, saving money, it's vain, Solomon says. Verse four, generations or children are vanity. You say that's harsh. Well, we work so hard to raise our children. We often idolize our children so that when they're doing well, we're doing well. They're not doing well. We're not doing well. Sometimes they do well. Other times they don't. They make us proud. They drive us nuts. It's It's vanity to put your hope in the success of your children, Solomon says. He had a lot of them. Uh, Verse 5 through 7, he says, creation or bare creation in and of itself is also vain. He says, the sun rises and sets over and over again. Eventually, it will run out. The wind goes here and there. It destroys things. It doesn't destroy things. Sometimes it feels nice. Sometimes it doesn't. What's the point? It rains. The rain runs into streams, it turns into rivers, it turns into oceans, which evaporates into clouds, which it rains again. What's the deal with creation? Without the creator, it's meaningless. Verse 8: He goes through power, vision, what we can hear, our energy, what we find beautiful visually, what we hear that's inspiring audibly, it's ultimately vanity. You can see this. The great movie will come out, amazing movie. And, and, you know, you'll be like, this is unbelievable. And then five years later, if you're like, me, I can barely remember the name of the movie. Uh, music, I mean, my, my, my son, uh, Jordan, loves music. I mean, the guy's got an unbelievable playlist. But, I mean, if it's like a year old, it's, it's pretty much irrelevant. Um, you can just see that happening with what we find amazing in the moment. Verses 9 and 10, new things, he says, Things that we find new, they're not actually new, he says. Well, maybe they're new in some form, of some kind. Maybe it's faster, processing speed's a little bit better, it's shinier, the presentation's better. But ultimately, even AI we're learning, without a telos or a goal, without some kind of direction, I mean, the governments of the world are trying to figure out what to do with it, ultimately it might break down our entire society because we thought it was so cool. And now we don't have a way to actually control and give it a meaning verse 11 achievements memories history you know ultimately all of your awards that you receive will be in a box it'll be a box in your children's attic and then it'll be a box in your grandchildren's attic if they haven't thrown it out by then if you're lucky enough to be in a history book what's what's the history what's going to be remembered it's it's very rare one in a million people get into the history book Most people after three generations, no one knows who you are. They might know your name. They might know where you lived. I'm sorry, this is just Solomon being brutally honest. But they don't remember much about you. And yet we make so much of ourselves in the midst of our lives. Solomon's point is without a connection to eternity, to God, everything runs out. Everything promises us that it will matter or we wouldn't pursue it. It promises us that if we will will worship it and serve it, that it will give us something valuable. It will make us feel a certain way and give us that kind of existence that we've always wanted. It will make us solid, but it is ephemeral. Blaise Pascal said that in our hearts and our souls, every human being has a God-shaped void. It's only fillable by God. And if we try to fill it with other things, it just loses meaning it actually begins to corrupt our souls. We can see this in, with stars in sports. For example, there are people, men and women, who work incredibly hard and they have so much. The world thinks they're amazing. They're popular and their physical bodies are amazing. They can do incredible things. But they often sacrifice their children, their spouses, their physical bodies, their emotional health in order to be the greatest at their sport. And at the end, they, they would question Was it really worth it? The wealthy and the powerful, they amass more financial and cultural capital than nearly anyone, but at the end of the day, they often are very unhappy. The point is, if you serve anything at the center of your life besides God, Solomon has tried it, and it didn't work, and he's pleading with you that you would not make the same mistake that he did. All is vanity without the Lord at the center of our lives. So that's his introduction. It's not very happy. It's very real, um, very real. But then the second point, I'll go all the way to the end of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The second point is this, fearing God and obeying him holds its meaning. That's good news. Let me remind you <clears throat> really quickly about who Solomon is so that you'll understand how wise this man was. 1 Kings 3, 9 through 13. This is Solomon praying to God as a young man. He says, "'Give your servant therefore an understanding mind "'to govern your people that I may discern "'between good and evil. "'For who is able to govern this, your great people?' "'So he asked for wisdom.' And the Lord says it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this and God said to him behold I now do according to your word behold I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been bef- has none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days So the Lord God Almighty, when Solomon asked for wisdom, said, I will give you wisdom, and it will be incomparable to anyone else who has ever lived before or after you. So God said, you're going to be the wisest person ever. Then, in 1 Kings 10, 1 through 7, another scripture for us to pay, pay attention to. So how do we know that Solomon was actually that wise? Well, we should just believe God's promise, but if we wanted more verifiable evidence... 1 Kings 10, 1 through 7 says this, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. And there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard with my own, in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity do surpass the report that I had heard. So we're talking about a man who was promised to be wise by God, and then you have a witness, someone coming from outside of Israel, a Gentile, a queen, who comes in to test him, and she gives this report. This guy is beyond anything that we have ever seen. And so we need to understand that it's this man, Solomon. We have a lot of certainty about that. It's not 100% sure, but I believe it's Solomon. Solomon is telling us this. That that gives it weight. That gives it context for us. That was not all that was true of Solomon. Between 1 Kings 10 and the end of 1 Kings 11, Solomon, even though he was wise, became a fool. How did he become a fool? Philip prayed about this. He didn't have a problem with knowledge. He had a problem with living according to that knowledge. And Solomon's Achilles' heel was women. A lot of them, women. And he believed at this point in his life he was going to go as far as he could to satisfy himself with sexual pleasure with as many women as he could find. And so rather than keeping the law of God, which had given given him this hope, rather than keeping God at the controlling center of his life, he decided. In this God-shaped void, what if I put sexual sin in the void? How will that go? And he had the power to do this. You know, in many ways, this is like porn for us today. We don't need to be rich like Solomon or to have cultural power like Solomon or power over others in order to have many women. We can have them. All we need is an internet connection. And so Solomon shows us Old Testament, pre internet pornography and the effects of it. He had to do it in person and he had the power to pull that off, but we don't have to be in person. Like many men and a growing number of women, honestly, he fell into the deep trap of pursuing sexual sin. We do it online, he did it in person. Solomon, say, Solomon would say for sure that porn is vanity. It is absolutely vanity. It is like a siren calling out to you in the distance. You don't want to follow it. You finally go find it, and that siren called that beautiful woman that you thought was going to satisfy you turns into a phantom-like demon, and it ruins you. Porn is like fentanyl. We talk a lot about, we hear a lot about fentanyl killing people, people overdosing on fentanyl. Fentanyl kills our bodies. Porn is killing our souls. We need to take it seriously. Solomon would say it's vanity. It's absolutely vanity. Trust me, I've tried it, he would say. We need to fear God. We need to fear God in this area of our lives more than we have a desire for sexual sin. I realize that's easier said than done, but I believe it's extremely important for us to hear that word from Solomon. It's one thing to know what's true. It's a different thing to seek to live by it. And so, it's this Solomon who says at the end of his life, at the end of his days, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. It really is the only way to gain meaning in life. Verse 14, at the end of the very last verse of the book, after verse 13 in chapter 12, Solomon says this, why fear God? It's not just for this life, it's also for eternity, Speaking of, about death, he has no problem speaking of death, by the way. We'll talk about death in this series because it's in Ecclesiastes quite a lot. On the other side of death, verse 14 tells us there is judgment for our every deed. For our every deed. That every deed in our lives will be laid bare before God. So Solomon says you need to, to fear God and keep his commandments, first of all, for this life. Because it's, knowing God is the only way to have meaning in this life. It's also the only way to stand in the judgment to come. Okay, the judgment to come. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I have just said myself, about myself, that I am prone to wander from the Lord. I, no one keeps Jesus at the controlling center of their life all the time. No one does. Our desire is to, as frequently as possible, to run to that well of repentance to trust in Jesus and to come back and make him that controlling center so that more and more and more that's true of who we are. But the only way to stand in the judgment is through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. So if you have never put your faith in Jesus, the only way that you can stand before God in the judgment and the only way that you can be happy right now in life is to trust in him. That's Solomon's words and those are my words to you. If you have trusted in Jesus, then you need to recognize that Though you are forgiven and though the blood of Jesus covers your sins and on that final day of judgment, he will be your only hope. Still, don't overlook the fact that you will stand before the Lord and every evil deed, every deed good or bad will be exposed before the Lord. You know Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked a lot about cheap versus costly grace. Cheap grace is grace that we don't take seriously. We're like, I'm forgiven, so I can kind of do what I need to do to, outside of Christ to be happy in life. That's cheap grace. Jesus died for my sin, so I, can, I don't have to take sin very seriously. Costly grace is Jesus died for my sin. The Son of God, the Savior of sinners, my Lord and Savior, died for my sins. And therefore, I want to learn to hate my sin. I want to learn to hate it. I want to learn to kill it in me because I don't want to have anything in me that brings him um, anything but glory, anything that takes glory and fame away from Jesus, anything that displeases him. I want to kill it because I love him because he died for me. That's Bonhoeffer. That's the gospel. We get confused because we say that grace is free. It is free for you, but it's not free ultimately. It's, it's, it's costly. It was, it's free for you because Jesus already paid the price to give you grace. And that cost was the blood. And that blood is the only way to stand in the judgment. But don't be there standing in the judgment and and be there and say, I intentionally pursued sin anyway because I knew I had grace. That's not going to be a good feeling, even if you are forgiven. And so, so old Solomon says, oh, how I wished I'd worship the Lord. For my heart, I wished I had all my days. I wished I'd kept them at the center of my life. I wished I had, and what I want for, for you, Solomon says, and what I want for you, Trinity Park, is that we would, we would do that, that we would see the destructiveness and heartache of sin, and that we would learn what Solomon knew in his old age at a, at a younger age, and that we would put Christ at the center of our lives. For the judgment, yes, but now we go back to now, The third point is keeping God at the center gives meaning to everything. We see this in Ecclesiastes 2 and 3 in those scriptures. Watch this. If we keep Christ at the center of our lives, then what happens is that everything that we do now has meaning because Jesus is there. Jesus, the eternal God, who loves you, cares about your life, cares about the things you're involved with. He created all of those things. And so if you walk with the creator God, the purpose-giving God, the eternal God in the, the, the mundane and the monumental moments of life, then there's meaning there. There's value there for us. An example, one of many that we will see in Ecclesiastes, you can find in Ecclesiastes 2, 24, and 25. He says things like this on, on, it feels like random occasion. He'll be breaking down the meaninglessness of life, and then he'll have a moment where he'll say, but actually, if you have God, then there's things that matter. There's value. And that's him pulling what he knows back into the meat of the body of the book. So he says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Do you see what he's doing here? He's just said a minute ago that toil is meaningless, that everything created is meaningless. But what he's doing now is he's saying, wait, with God, with the fear of God, now I can work and there's meaning. Now I can enjoy the fruits of my labor and there's meaning. Now I can enjoy the relationships around me with my my family, and my friends, now there's meaning. Now if I'm not eating a perfect meal at a perfect restaurant in a perfect location, I can still enjoy my life. I can still enjoy the life that God has given me. Without God, everything is vain, but with God, nothing is vain. I was talking with a fellow soccer dad on the sidelines at a game recently whose daughter plays with Camille. This guy's having a hard time in life, um, And you can tell, uh, but without going into the details, he he simultaneously is obviously not doing well at all, and then on the other hand saying that what matters more to him than anything else in all the world is being at his daughter's soccer games. And I find that both um, something I can relate to and also something that Solomon would say, man, that's really sad, okay? It's sad. Um, to be a little more, to add some humor a little bit to this, like if you ever watch the Holderness family in some of their videos, they just came up with a hilarious video about their little kid, Johnny, you know, wanted to play soccer, and so they sign up and spend all this money and get him in the best league, and he, he's in soccer, and then they sign him up and sign him up, they're traveling around the world, and then suddenly Johnny doesn't want to play soccer anymore, he wants to play tennis, and now they don't care about soccer at all anymore. They don't care about soccer, they care about tennis. And so now it's all tennis. And it's just kind of a a little mockumentary of suburban life where when you're on the sidelines at your kid's soccer game, I can lose perspective about how important this really is. And if you just want to break it down without God in the picture, what are we talking about here? We're talking about kids kicking a ball around in a grass field. And they may score, they may not. And it feels like everything when little Johnny scores. But then little Johnny comes home and he doesn't care about soccer anymore and now you don't care about soccer anymore and it just shows like what is this about youth sports that just drives our suburban culture a lot of times but what if you put God into youth sports what if you bring God into it now this is these are children loved by God created in his image now they're playing a game that is fun God loves games God created a lot all everything that we enjoy in the world God Created Everything that's good. Um, he, loves, he loves friendships. He loves when people are together. He loves when we enjoy life. He, when we're out there on a good day and it's beautiful, it actually does have meaning. Even youth sports can have tra- transcendent meaning if you bring God into the picture. Going back to Ecclesiastes 1, let's just show how God brings mattering into meaninglessness When he is in the picture, what about toil? Well, fearing God and loving him means that we can enjoy the fruits of our work. It means that we're not just working for whatever the boss says. We're working for God rather than for men. And we realize that our work is even a gift from him, even when it's hard. Creation. Fearing God and loving him means that creation, it's not just sun, wind, and rain, These are things that the Lord gives us when we're admiring a beautiful mountain range or an ocean view. If you you just break it down without God, you know, what's it all for? But with God, he's the creator. He gave us this moment. He gave us this world to enjoy and to take care of. And the example from achievements, memories, history, fearing God means that we have eternity in our hearts. We can serve the Lord, the eternal God. He brings lasting meaning into things that actually, even if we're forgotten by people in three generations, the Lord doesn't forget. And we get to enjoy him and spend eternity with him forever. As bare realities in this world, if we don't have God at the center, everything breaks down. But Solomon tells us that actually with God, everything matters. This is why everything matters. It's because God is with us in the midst of it. You know, I mentioned Blaise Pascal, and it's well known that he said everyone has a God-shaped void. Well, Solomon had that void. I have that void. You have that void. And we, and you and I, Solomon included, we have pursued so many different ways. We're constantly seeking after that, that glory, that, that mattering. What's really going to bring value to my life? And it's so elusive if we're honest with ourselves. And so Solomon would say this, he would say, he wrote Ecclesiastes for you and for me to give us a break from the pain and the disillusionment that can be caused in life when we put anything, even ministry, at the center of our lives. Even being valued by other people at the center of our lives. Even our own rights and what we feel like we deserve at the center of our lives. Any relationship outside of our relationship with God that we put at the center of our lives, Solomon is saying, I plead with you to learn not to put any of those people, places, or things in your life, any of those pursuits at the center of your life. It's only reserved for God. And you may be out there saying, you know what, I'm not done. I'm still optimistic about the opportunities that I have to find value in life apart from God. And Solomon would just plead with you and say, I I beg to disagree with you. You may say, you know what, I'm actually not optimistic anymore. I'm quite disillusioned with life. But I don't believe God will satisfy me. Solomon would say, "I, I beg to disagree with you as well. And some of you may be saying, you know what, I do believe that. I do believe that only God can fit at the center. And I do believe that through Christ, all things can have meaning. But I want to know more. I want to know more about what that looks like in my life. Ecclesiastes is your book. We're going to have a good time seeing, breaking out different angles at that beautiful diamond as the light of God is refracted through different areas of our life. How do we engage in those areas of life without idolizing it, keeping Christ at the center and living life on purpose as if it matters because it does, because God is with us at the center? Let's pray. Father, we're humbled by your word and we recognize that there's so many, um, there's so much wisdom here that we don't understand and we want to know more. And we also confess, Lord, that we're so prone to forgetting this, to not, not putting you at the center, not fearing you and keeping your commands. Lord, I pray that over the summer that we would reflect deeply on what it means to love you. And because you love us, to, to love you back and to follow you in those dirt under the fingernails when no one is watching areas of our lives or when many are watching that we would keep you first and that through that you would show us how to live life in all of these meaningful areas in a way that brings you glory. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name.